Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. This panel has been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and presenters at Metatopia 2019. Episode 259, More Than Just Victory Points, Alternative Approaches to Win Conditions, presented by Peter Hayward and Gil Hova. This is, uh, what's the name of this panel? It's um, <laughs> something to do with victory points. Uh, <laughs> alternative win conditions. Alternative win conditions, yes, victory points are why you don't have to use them, something along those lines. Uh, so, just a brief introduction I'm Peter Haywood, I'm Jelly Bean Games. Uh, we make kid friendly games that adults love, and uh, we've made Dracula's Feast and Scuttle that I've been designing for about five years now. Gil. My name's Gil Hove, and I love victory points. <laughs> this is going to be a lot of fun. So the idea for the panel is I just wanted to talk about the fact that... So let's start by defining terms. What is a victory point? A victory point is a unit by which you measure your success within a game. So what are some examples of games with victory points? Uh, I think uh, the easiest one I can pick is Settlers of Catan, or just playing Catan now. Uh, So every time you put a settlement down, that is one victory point. Every time you get a city, it's considered to be worth two VP, but since you replace a, a house with a city, it's a net of plus one VP. Um, longest road is plus two VP, largest army is plus two VP, and certain cards give you one VP here and there. So you can see one of the um, things about VP is you can place them in little parts of your game to encourage multiple paths to victory. Now, I think your games are better known than mine. Have you ever designed a game with VP? I have designed many games with a VP. In fact, all of my published games involve VP. Uh, well, hang on. I was going to say, is that true? Are you going to include Wordsy in that? Wordsy has points. Yeah, I'd count Wordsy. Yep. I was thinking, bad, uh, bad Medicine has points? Oh, Bad Medicine. Very I'm much so, yes. Yeah. The, thing, the thing about party games is you have to indicate to players what... Um, What's the behavior trying to incentivize? Like, what's right. the cool thing? And that's what you dangle points for. And, but it's not the winning that's important. It's just the goal. Right. There's a quote that is not from you, but I heard you say it first. So in my mind, it's a guilt quote. Uh-oh. Which is, uh, game design is incentive design. Oh, that is me. Yeah. That is you. Okay. That's, me, well, yeah. that, that's my favorite guilt yeah. quote. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, game design is creative, creative incentivization. Yes. Yes. Uh, which I really like as a way of looking at game design. Uh, so just to get a read of the room, who here is a game designer? And that is uh, every, uh, just about everybody. The one person who didn't raise her hand is a game designer, I happen to know. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, the reason I want to talk about victory points. Okay, so first of all, there's a few different ways you can look at victory points. And the thing I want to talk about is the difference between, I'm going to say a point salad and a race. Mm-hmm. Does, that, does that difference immediately make sense to you? Oh, it, yeah, it makes total sense to cool. me, yes. So do you, want, uh, do you want to describe the difference, just so we're um, on the same page? Well, I, I, you know, I don't think, point salad is a pejorative term. Like, people use oh, okay. point salad... What, what would to be mean, a non-pejorative equivalent? Um, you know, I've 
so James Ernest originally distinguished this, but he called it a brawl, you know, a brawl versus a race. But that was before Euro games really took hold. You know, I would say an, an optimization game a lot of times. Optimization um, game, you know, point salad. Um, sometimes, yeah. I mean, or an efficiency game. Uh, but the general idea is in one kind of game, uh, you're, there's some end game condition that's ex that that is not linked to your score. So it's like X number of turns or when this resource pool runs out, something like that. Scythe uh, uses when all the when someone has five stars on the board. Yes, yep, yep. And then uh, the game ends and a lot of times uh, there's end game scoring. And end game scoring, we're gonna get into this in a moment, but there's this cloud of optimization and uh, that obscures who's going to win the game. Uh, that can be dramatic, or it can be incredibly boring. Right. Um, compare this to a race where the first person to uh, the goal wins. Catan is a race. The first player to 10 points wins. Yep. Uh, and so I'd say most author games, most competitive games, fall into those two categories. I'm trying yeah. to think if there's another um, category not really anything spring to mind. Well, you're putting me on the spot here. Yeah. Uh, but um, if anyone has thoughts, by the way, raise your hand. You're welcome to, to be involved in the discussion. But yeah, I think I think most games that have a winner are going to be either uh, you you finish the game somehow, then add up points, or first to achieve X wins. CV. Well, it could be last to achieve something like a last minute standing or something like that. Oh yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, yep. That, yep. that's a very good yep. point. Yeah, that, that's a third one. Yep. Well, since you mentioned side, like side is kind of interesting because it's sort of a mix of both. Yep. First to end, but also venue still counts. Yeah, yep. I, I would I would put side firmly in the in the category of you add up the points and win because it is it is a trigger that has to do with victory points, but that is not the decider of the winner. So for yep. me, a race game is strictly if you do X, you win the game. Yep. And there are many games actually that. And when a certain point threshold is triggered, right. but the person who triggered the point, th point threshold is not necessarily the winner yeah. because somebody can go past them. Yeah. So they seem like a race, but they're not. Um, what about games that are like these, these games? You have to die to for like coup. I mean, uh, the coup, yeah, absolutely. Coup is yeah. a player elimination uh, yeah. game. In coup, the last man standing wins. The yeah. last player to, to be in the game. But no, you're right. Like it, it feels different. But if you're breaking down victory conditions for competitive games. I think they typically fall into those probably three categories. There are also cooperative games like uh, Betrayal. Um, cooperative games are a whole other field that, uh, in, in this I'm, I'm not interested in focusing on, neither of us particularly designed cooperative games, unless um, I'm mistaken. I, I think cooperative games can still fill, fill, fit into the schema a lot of times, because you know you look at a game like Pandemic, for example. Which is you know, a race. Yeah, right. yeah it's, it's kind of a race. Like You win if you win the race, but there's triggers that... If you take too long to win the race, you lose. You know, right? Um, for, for me, they're, they're such a different like side category. That like nothing against cooperative games, but for, for this conversation, I don't think they're particularly fruitful. So I'm just going to put them on a shelf and say, uh, sorry, cooperative games, you're not relevant to what we're discussing today. <laughs> uh, so yeah, broadly speaking, I think games can fall into those three categories. And I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and have an opinion here. Are you ready for this? Stand back. I'm gonna say that the most uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to have an opinion. It's difficult for me because I'm Australian. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say that the easiest to design is player elimination. I think that's that's the one that people automatically trend to, uh, but gamers like gamers have kind of moved past that. I think because that that was how a lot of games were designed. So you mean like, like a new designer, someone who has never yeah, seen any modern I, I, game? Yeah, I, I think if if you were given the challenge, design a game in two hours, you can do whatever you like, and you don't care about the market. I think player elimination is going to be the easiest one to put together. Uh, that's well, that doesn't describe me, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then I'm going to say that uh, I think race is... Okay, let me start again. I think that race games are the hardest to you to make fun. I think that 
to make them uh, using it? Okay, let me, whew. I, I mean, it, a lot of this is dependent on the designer, right? Some designers, it's just going to come naturally, and some designers, it's going to be true. really hard. So, but nevertheless, I think the important thing is when it comes to VP, yep. what kinds of experiences are you trying to make in your game? Like, let's get to the, let's cut, because uh, I, I, yeah, because I think that's really what it comes down to. Um, VP, so this is what I'm on the panel to speak of. Like, this is why I'm here. VP are not bad. VP, I really like. But VP are tools, and sometimes you need to use the right tool for the job, and sometimes that tool is not VP. Right. I, my, my central hypothesis, I guess, is that VP is the default. I think people default to VP, and as a result, as a publisher who sees a lot of pictures, I think that most games have VP, and if you want to stand out in today's very, very crowded market, doing something other than a, a point salad kind of finish the game out of points will make you stand out and is substantially harder to do. That's my central, my central point. I, I think that's fair. All those points are fair. If you design your game without VP, it's, um, it, it will likely stand out from yeah. other games. But it's still got to be good. Right, and, and, and that's the main thing I want to talk about today, which is how to make a game without VP be good, because it's incredibly challenging, mm -hmm. and very few people are doing it, in my experience. Uh, so, and... and People will often be like, ah, but a race game is just a VP of one. And I'm like, okay, that's not really what we're talking about here. So I've been on a real design kick lately where I'm trying to... I, my, my friend... Uh, oh, I've got notes that I should pull out at some point. My friend Jeff got really annoyed at me because I said that victory points are the white males of board games. <laughs> which, is, which is a fun statement to make. So Peter I'm, loves hitting buttons. <laughs> and I really stand by this statement, ridiculous as it is. So I'm a writer, and I'm not designing board games, I'm a, I'm a full-time author, and I'm trying to get into screenwriting. I write, 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 that's what I do when I'm not designing games. And whenever I sit down to write something, by default, I automatically make the characters white males. And this is not something I'm proud of, but it's something that I do without thinking. I'll be like, do, 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 synopsis, and I'll look at it and be like, man, there's a lot of white men in this. Because it's the default, it's the easiest thing to do, it's, it's what people expect, it's what I expect, and... I think victory points, as in the point salary, what was the, what was the term we used? The finish the game and add up points. Yeah, optimization efficiency. Optimization efficiency is the white males in that when you sit down and design a game, that's what you do automatically because that's, I think, in many ways, like the easiest for the modern gaming audience. And just like in writing, when you're like, okay, but what if every character wasn't a white male? I think when you ask the question, what if this wasn't that one victory condition that we always see and always use? you suddenly go into really interesting territories and you're doing stuff that most people aren't doing. And that's why <laughs> optimization is the white male's of board game design. That, that's, the, that's the central point there. I think that's defensible. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, I thought you were gonna... Yeah, no, no, it's, it's yeah, I, I, I don't think there's any mistruth in there. Um, right. it, so, um, yeah, can you give me an example of a game that you really like that has no VP, that's still a competitive ortho game? It's it, uh, instable. Istanbul. Istanbul, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Istanbul is one of my top five games. I, I originally played... Istanbul is a uh, Euro from 2010, 2012? That sounds... Maybe a little later, 2012, something like that. Yeah. But that remind range. me how the scoring works, because it's been a few years since I played so it. So Istanbul is a very clever, like, worker, worker placement, moving around a market kind of thing. Every turn, you, you pick up your pieces, you move them around, and you're trying to be the first to collect five gems. And there's a bunch of ways you can get these gems. Uh, you can pay gold for them, you can trade goods for them, you can upgrade your cart and get a gem. So there's a few different ways to get these gems, but ultimately the first way to get five gems ends the game, that's it. 
and you don't see gems as VP here? No, and this, this, this is the distinction I was trying to make earlier. It is a race game. Mm -hmm. It is first to get five, sure, the victory points, but it's not, okay, we've played out the game, now let's sit down and work out who's won. It's, mm -hmm. oh, we're done. Mm -hmm. We're done and you won. Now there are downsides to this. Uh, when I first played Istanbul, I loved it, and then for like a, for probably like, actually I did a panel here in this room two or three years ago, it was like, I used to like Istanbul, I'll never play it again. And that was because the race element really frustrated me. I would look at myself and be like, I have two gems, you know, Gil has four, I can't win, I feel out of the game. But the more, the more I've, I've been especially taking pictures and seeing games, the more I'm like, okay, there are ways to avoid that I can see that I'm out of the game problem. And, and this, is, this is one of the things I'm trying to talk about where it can be a race game where people still feel like they're involved right to the end without having this accounting period, basically. So that, that would be one example. Yeah, okay. Uh, so now I see more where you're coming from. So um, one thing that VP are really, really good at doing, yeah. uh, as uh, in my Catan example, is they can incentivize multiple paths to victory. Yes. Um, when I, whenever I take a look, like sometimes I look at how can I make this game without victory points, and I usually wind up um, going with VP because it's so much easier to incentivize people to do different kinds of strategies and to do different things. Absolutely. So how do you do it if you no longer have the carrot of VP? So yeah, that, that's a very good way of putting it. VP, uh, to, to kind of break down game design a little bit more, um, like, like to, to quote the great Gil Hover, uh, <laughs> game, game design is creative incentive, incentivization. Did I yes, that's, yes. Nailed it. <laughs> you can quote me quoting him if you like. That's, that's <laughs> Uh, so the thing about players is that they refuse to have fun unless you throw points at them. And this is, this is part of why the optimization puzzle is, is such an easy way to do. People will, you can design a game that's got a really fun me mechanism, or if they do this other thing they win, and they'll be like, well I'm not going to have fun today, that's for sure, and they will just mash that win button ignoring the fun part of the game. So game design is about making sure that they have fun by giving them victory points. Or, and, and this is the interesting, when you can find other ways of making them have fun without just being like, the thing that actually got me on this whole rant, have you played Tapestry yet? Not yet, no. So I haven't yet, but I was reading the rule book, and there's a million different ways to get VP in that game. It's, it's one of Jamie Segmeyer's favorite things. One thing you do is if you explore, so you're a little civilization, you're building up your tech, and you're, you're doing all this stuff. When you explore, you take an explore tile and you put it on the board, and if you match coast to coast, or if you match river to river, if you match land to land, you get a point for each of those matches, which for me is just the least thematic thing I've ever heard of. Like. You get victory points for discovering land that map like, and it's obvious that Jamie wanted people to make a pretty map. And mm -hmm. he was like, how do I get people to make a pretty map? I'll just, I'll just pay them to do it, essentially. <laughs> I'll just give them money and then they'll do it. And it works, but it's just such a, such a transparent way for me at this point. So I think this gets into psychographic profiles. Yes. Like, why are people sitting down to play the games that they're playing? And uh, for me, there's four main psychographic profiles, and there's a ton of different kinds of psychographic profiles, but for me, it boils down to four. Uh, there's master, someone who wants to absolutely master the game and do as well as possible, um, and optimize their performance. I, I learned these as the four suits of a card, which I find mm -hmm. to be a really useful mnemonic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another is explorer. So an explorer wants to explore all the interesting nooks and crannies. They're different from the master because they don't necessarily want to do well. They just want to do something interesting, and that doesn't always map to doing something that the game ranks as well. That, that's the player who will yeah. sit down and play a game and be like, what if I never get a new worker? What happens? Yeah. Yes. Uh, and a master can often get frustrated at an explorer because the explorer is not playing optimally, so they're not playing predictably. 
Um, then there's a third kind who is a storyteller. A storyteller wants everything to make narrative sense. So what Peter just said about the rivers not matching up, that's a storyteller frustration. And, um, and it's, it's pretty common to hear it. When storytellers play games with VPs, they're usually like really frustrated. Like, why am I getting points to do this thing that's completely athematic? And then the fourth psychographic profile for me is the friend. You know, somebody just wants to hang out with everybody else at the table, and the game is a reason to do that. And I think all four of those are completely valid reasons to play a game. None of them makes you more of a gamer than the other. Yeah, so I don't think anything is better or worse. Yeah? I didn't hear the last one. The friend. Okay. Yes. Uh, you just want to hang out and spend time, which I think is comes down to one of the best reasons to play a game. You know, that's a really good reason to play a game. Especially tabletop over video games. Exactly. I mean, that's kind of the whole point. So, um, so I, I mentioned these four uh, profiles because the master will be heavily incentivized by VP and won't really care about any narrative issues. The explorer also will be incentivized by VP in terms of what's an interesting play. Could this get me VP? I'll try this and see if that works. Um, but uh, they won't be bothered too much by story. Whereas the storyteller is going to get frustrated if there's too much emphasis on VP uh, to the point where the game doesn't make narrative sense. And for the friend, uh, the VP matter in terms of, well, you know, it, it's got to be uh, this particular game, in order to do well, I have to play to win. So I'm going to do that, but I'm also going to spend time and hang out with people. But I'm not going to. Um, not talk at all and optimize my moves the way a master would. Um, and all four of those are going to look at VP in your game slightly differently. So I think one of the things you have to ask yourself is, who am I designing the game for? Um, I don't believe you can design a game for all four simultaneously. You can design a game that satisfies like maybe three of them, but all four is difficult. You can, play, you can design a game that all four will play. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they're not all going to rave about yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, so you asked, you asked, how do you incentivize players without the carrot? Like yes. The, the carrot, uh, I mean, one, one easy method is the stick, <laughs> which well, is kind yeah. of the flip side of it. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so to look at Istanbul, you're trying to get these... Uh, sorry, what's the question again? Just, uh, just phrase the question. How do, you, how do you incentivize people to multiple paths of victory without the carrot of VP? So it's an interesting question. So one thing I've been doing in these games is I've been uh, having these recipes, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, so you want to get... To win the, uh, we've got a game Goblin Teeth coming to Kickstarter on Tuesday. Check it out; it's very good. And to win that game, there's three possible recipes, and you win just by completing any one recipe. Mm -hmm. If you get like two worms and three coins, bam! It's, it, you're, you're trying to please the Goblin King. That's why they're worms and coins and teeth. Uh, so if you get three worms and, and two coins, you're the first player to do so. You get that one. The other one could be like two skulls and a thing or whatever. And so immediately, there's different ways to achieve a single goal. Without, with, with nary a victory point in sight. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that's one way. You can have... Uh, I'm, I'm trying to answer the question without just resetting the question. No, no, it makes sense because I'm going to use both my hands here so I have to put the microphone down. So, like, multiple paths to victory, you sort of see it as, you know, you've got three tines to the fork, effectively, right. and each one results in, like, a little VP ding. Yeah. Whereas uh, designing, we're using the term without VP. Technically, in a way, you're still designing with VP, but the numbers are so ungranular right. that they may as well not be VP, especially if, you're, if, if the object is to be first to X. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and so, this is why I said it. Like some people like chess as a VP yeah. game. You get one VP if you kill the king, <laughs> and it's one VP to win. You're like, okay, you're, you're useless. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for contributing nothing. You pedant, go away. So but you, uh, guys, you guys stay. So um, I think the way you're describing is instead of being open ended, the ways close back. Right. You know, so no matter what you do, you're going to get the point. Uh, but there's multiple ways to get the point. Yeah. Um, the point is not the right term. Uh, multiple ways to get the carrot, I guess, right, is the right. best way to do it. So you know, you're instead still... of lots of little carrots, it's just one big carrot. Yes, or and... maybe three big carrots. You know. Yeah, and yeah. You're, you're driving people towards those. And the advantage. Of, so, so one thing I've been discovering as I go on this journey is if you have just a singular goal. So if, if in Goblin Teeth we have just one recipe, people are not going to feel like they have choices. They're like, well, I have to do this thing because it makes me that. So one way you can, you can cut BP from your game is just by having multiple victory conditions that uh, maybe have some overlap, and this allows people to pivot. And allowing people to pivot is really important. Um, I had a big discussion with uh, my friend Jeff, who got annoyed at me for the white male thing, and I wanted to quote from him. He said, uh, one of the huge advantages of victory points is everyone always has something to do. If everything is worth points, you can never get cut off and feel disengaged. You can always do something to raise your score, even if you won't win. And engagement is king in modern Euros. I thought that was a really nice little, little way of putting it. So one of the distinct advantages of VP, which is really hard to replicate without them, is if you think you're losing, how do you still feel good playing the game? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's a that's an excellent question. Yeah. When you're working, I think a lot of this uh, goes to feedback. In any game. You're going I mean, to we're not talking like playtest feedback, we're talking yeah. player feedback. And we're not talking about if I held this microphone up to the speaker <laughs> feedback. Uh, so we're talking about the feedback that the game system gives you to tell you how you're doing. Like, yeah. for example, um, in a game, I do this move, I get five points. So the game gave me feedback. Whereas if I did this other move, I would only get two points. So well, you're immediately rewarded. Yeah. And the game is telling me, it's giving me the feedback of which one is better, which one's more optimal. Um, and that feedback can feel good sometimes. Like sometimes it's really good stimulus. When you do something and you got to draw like three cards from the deck, that feels good because you open up this possibility. The game is giving you this, this really good feedback. And the feedback could be a stick also. Like I did this thing and now, well, worst case scenario, I lose my turn. Yeah. Or maybe I have to discard cards from my hands. You have children yes. killed in real life. Yeah. So, so the game is giving me feedback there that uh, what I did was not good and I've got a course correct. Um, so every game has some sort of feedback. And so what uh, what Jeff, Jeff, right? Jeff, yeah. What Jeff is saying there uh, over there is um, that VP are really good, like small little bursts of VP are really good at giving feedback. In the example from Tapestry, you get immediate feedback when you place when that you do tile. What Jamie wanted you to do. Yep, you get that immediate <laughs> feedback, you know? Yeah. I mean, well, I, 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 I mean, Luke... Crane and Jared Sorensen have a great talk called Game Design is Mind Control. Right. And that's really what it comes down to is, is that, that incentive, you know? And that, fair, that's fair, that's what Jamie wants to do. Yeah. That's game design. Yeah. Like, game, like, all your games is what Peter wants to do. All my games is what Gil wants <laughs> you to do. I mean, that's game design. He's not wrong for doing yeah. that. I just love that example because it's so transparent. <laughs> like, I've never seen anything. Uh, there's a really useful video game term uh, called juice. Yes. 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 So juice is uh, is basically feedback. It's not the word for feedback, but it's the visual feedback. Mm -hmm. So the example I've always heard is is in a in a game like Borderlands, when you pull the trigger, you will uh, you will see the gun kick. You'll see a little puff of, of dust come out of the end. You'll see the bullet travel. You'll have something flash up to so that your your things gone down. Your controller will vibrate. This is all collectively referred to as juice. 
And one of the more interesting things I've found in trying to eliminate uh, victory points, because victory points are just heroin straight to the vein. <laughs> so without that, you suddenly have to be like, okay, well, what do people enjoy doing? So you gave a really good example. People love drawing cards. Mm -hmm. If you let people draw cards, they will go nuts for it. And working in board games is particularly interesting because there's a whole lot of little tactile things that you can give people that they enjoy. So uh, in my game Robots, which you have played, yes, sir. Uh, one of the things you can do is if you move, move this big master robot around, you get to crush all the robots. Mm -hmm. And that means that you wipe them off the board, which feels good, just to like, cleaning is an innately fun activity for some reason, like watching something that was messy suddenly become clean. And for every one of these robots, you get a cube. Giving people stuff is another really good non, like, it's, it's like giving a VP, but it's not VP. People love getting stuff, whether that's cards or cubes, they love clearing stuff off. Uh, another, another really nice one is they love fitting stuff together. So patchwork, mm -hmm. uh, it, it overtly rewards you for like covering stuff up, but also, man, that feeling when you cover up like the last corner of a bit that's filled in, it just feels good. Mm -hmm. And then this comes back to, we know this feels good, so we have to give them points to do so. Uh, so you need to make sure that these things that you're doing that feel good are also leading them to victory. And so I think of when I'm designing without, without the heroine that is VP, I try to just get as much juice in there as possible. Mm -hmm. So what's examples of juice in a board game? Oh, well, that's, uh, the, the, the clearing robots. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, the, the, the ones the you just gave. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Um, I'll, I'll give yeah. you another one from Istanbul, because that's, that's better known than my un unpublished prototype. <laughs> uh, in Istanbul, you, can, uh, you have this little caravan, and you start with two slots for each of the four goods. Mm -hmm. Every time you collect goods, you just fill up one of those colors. So you start with two red, two blue, two yellow, two green. When you go to the red spot, you get two red. That feels good. When you upgrade your caravan, you'd have three of each slot. When you go to the red spot, you still fill it up, so now you get three. Mm -hmm. And again, it's getting stuff, but it's, it's so good. The, uh, the caravan is a little cutout, <coughs> and every time you put one in, you click it in, and you're covering up more of this empty space. Mm -hmm. And then when you get all of them, you get a gem. This is one of the ways you can get gem. Mm -hmm. So you're simultaneously becoming more efficient, which humans love. You're getting more stuff, you're clicking stuff in, and eventually you get a victory point from it. So that, that for me, is a really classic example of juice in place of little you know, chunks of victory points. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, let's. I want to talk about um, VP and story because yeah. um, VP can really get in the way of story. And this is something that um, I'm going to be speaking more at, on a tabletop network in a couple of weeks. But um, I feel like this is going to be a big thing for me to say. Um, <laughs> uh, so games, when they have a victory condition, and they have points that get you there, be they big points or small points, it's almost like a little ethical system, you know? Yeah. And everything that you do that gets you to points, uh, that gets you closer to victory, is good from an ethical perspective within the game. Right. Uh, so if you have a game where uh, you get points by, you know, okay, I'm gonna make a, a standard example, by colonizing the land, you know? Uh, you get points for settling the land, quote unquote. In a lot of games, this is a bloodless process where you're just putting a tile down. But you know, many people have pointed out that colonization in the real in yeah. real life. There, there are no islands out there that are completely farmable and perfect for people to come to that are completely unoccupied. Yeah, it's not, not bloodless. Yeah, there's no. So, so what are you really doing? What are you really doing when you're getting those points? Um, are, are you just abstracting? Are you hiding away uh, this? the stuff that in real life was very damaging. Yeah. So that's an example of like a disconnect uh, of, uh, of storytelling. You the, know, the, the, the game classic is example is... Sorry, let me just finish. Okay. The, 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 the game is telling you a different story than uh, the, what real life actually has. It's a totally different model. 
Sorry, you were going to say? Uh, the classic example is it called Train. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes, yes. Uh, Train the Romero game. Yeah, it, it's, it's half game, half art project. Uh, they got people to sit down and play this Euro where you're trying to get cubes onto a train as efficiently as you could. And at the end, you found that all these trains were going to uh, Auschwitz. Yeah. Yeah. And so at the end, people were like, oh, we were, we were being the Nazis. We were the monsters all along. But it felt good to be doing it until you found out what it was. And so that's kind of like what you're talking about in the most like stark form. Yeah, yeah. She's deliberately trying to get you to feel dissonance there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of ways to feel about that. Um, like, uh, uh, speaking of ethics, like, what, you know, what are the ethics of fooling people into thinking they're playing one game when they're really playing another? Yeah. Um, but that said, it is a good example of, like, an intended dissonance um, in terms of storytelling. But a lot of times you'll see the storytelling is, um, is, is dissonant um, and it's not intended. It winds up being... Uh, okay, well, I've, my favorite. So my favorite example is a game called Monkeys on the Moon. Uh, this yeah. was a really. Have you ever played it? Uh, no, but I listen to a lot of your podcasts. Okay, yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. So Monkeys on the Moon. I, I, one day I'll show you this game. It is a really good game, but it's a game. The the object of the game is to civilize the six different tribes of monkeys that happen to live on the moon. And then once you have the most civilized monkeys, you shoot the most civilized monkeys back to Earth for points, which is an awesome theme. But it's a bidding euro. Yeah. Like, it is 100% a dry bidding euro. This game, I think, would have been better had it been trading in the Mediterranean, because then you would have gone in expecting a dry bidding euro. Yeah. You know, so um, it's, a, it's a good game, but that's the dissonance, dissonance and that's the disconnect. You're thinking the game's going to tell one story, but it's going to tell another. So from a master and an explorer point of view, uh, like, all games tell stories, okay? But the story you're telling with your game is not the story you might be expecting. You might think that the story your game is telling is, I'm going to civilize these monkeys, and I'm going to, I shot that monkey back to Earth. That monkey is going to totally rock uh, this, its civilization back on Earth. Whereas the story you're really telling is, I got six VP for that. Yeah. And the, I think the, I'm in the, the lead. Yeah. Is, yeah, yes. Between me mechanics and theme, they were very different. Yeah. Now, uh, I just want, just to finish yeah, my point, it's... Um, now, saying I got six VP for that is not necessarily a bad story. Like, you see stories like this all the time. You just look at a sports section um, of, well, okay, you read a sports website. Uh, you see the, uh, you watch an Overwatch match, for example, an Overwatch League match, and you, you, you hear people talking about, well, this team has gone full goats, and they're going to do really well on that map. That's exactly the same kind of story. It's completely a story that's related to how a, how a player or a team is going to win a game, and that's a story. But it's not the same level of story as... Uh, in the world, whatever planet Overwatch is set on, we've got these factions fighting, and which one narratively is going to win? Like, that's not the same story. You know, people have swapped out one story for another because they're finding this crunchy um, who's going to win story more interesting and more compelling. So your masters and explorers are going to be attracted to that story, but your storytellers and sometimes your friends are going to be attracted to the other story. Actually, your friend might be attracted to the story that you're telling about your day job right at the table. Yeah, yeah. yeah both, uh, both race games and player eliminations, I think, inherently have a more dramatic story. Because being, being eliminated from a game is a dramatic moment. It's a big moment. Yes, it is. In theory... Now, there's <laughs> another, as you said, there is a big weak spot of race games, which is race games by nature have transparent scores, transparent scoring. They often and, do. They don't have to. Yeah. So that, that's interesting to me. A lot of times, you're going to be able to tell, like, one or two rounds from the end, it's over. Yeah. Like, it's clinched. Um, and that's a tricky thing to, to pull off as a, 
uh, as a designer, like how do I keep the drama right, while yeah. doing that, while still making early play meaningful? Because you can engineer it so that the last round is most exciting, but when you do that, that'll often mean that the first few rounds are meaningless. Yeah, there's uh, there's no uh, what's, what's the quote? There's no decisions. Everything's a trade-off. Or you know, there's no correct decisions. Everything's a trade-off. All so, roads lead to Rome. Yeah. One of the one of the big trade-offs of moving away from victory points and towards more this race element is that a better player. So, in, in a typical um, optimization game, you might have an idea of who's winning, but until you sit down and crunch the numbers, you're not sure. Someone might have a card in their hand that was like, ah, each of my blue cubes was worth 15 points. Oh, I didn't see that coming. Look, you skyrocketed to the end because I didn't notice you were hoarding blue cubes. Or another part of it is just, you can math it out, but that's going to take a calculator or a spreadsheet and like 15 minutes, and it it obscures it simply because it's a pain in the ass to do. Yeah. Uh, Scythe has a rule, I think, that if someone starts to math it out before they take their turn, their turn's over. (laughs) He really hard-lined that one. That's an excellent rule. Uh, and so one of one of the big challenges I've found with designing more of these kind of race games is how do you obfuscate? Like, because mm-hmm. again, in Istanbul, if you have two gems and I have, if, if I have, if you have two and I have four, I'm probably gonna win. Like, it's very hard to get three gems in a single turn. And one thing I've found is useful is to uh, lean into these kind of big spiky turns, mm-hmm. uh, which can can almost go away from what the master wants some of the time. Like the master wants everything to be very controlled in, in their play. They want to be like, ah yes, I can tell exactly what you can do and what you can do. Thus, I know that this will be the best move. Uh, again, just to use robots as an example, I have these, these uh, action cards and they are off the walls crazy. Like one of them is when you would do these two actions, do them six times each instead. And if you start to build up a hand of these cards, then you might look like you're several, you know, gems behind the winner, but in two turns, you can suddenly catch up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that, that's one technique that I've found useful. So. Can you say that the explorers kind of looking for those kind of spiky turns? Oh, yes. Right? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. If the explorer likes nothing more than being all the way at the back and then finding that one move that doubles everybody's score. Yeah. They, uh, they, they like the camel up sequence where the back one goes to the next one and then gets catapulted right to the front. So yeah. I'm an explorer. That's uh, what I like to do. So uh, one of my favorite games is Princess of Florence. Where, um, at, at, like, halfway through the game, everybody's got, like, 15 points and I have zero points. I'm like, oh, Gil, you're doing so badly. I'm like, no, it's, don't worry about me. And uh, my last four turns, like, the main way you get points is by publishing works. And you only get, like, 14 turns the whole game. And my last six turns are usually publish, 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 publish. Like six publishing. And that's like something I get within those last three rounds. I get like 60 points and win the game. Because I've spent the whole game building that up. Um, and that's such an explorer model. Like, um, I mean, it's it sort of pivots over to master at a certain point where you've played enough. You're like, okay, this is a strategy I know keeps me competitive. But explorers love that stuff. That like, I'm gonna redline this as hard as I can. Yeah. Uh, and then a similar thing I found is uh, again, this is just stuff I've learned from making VP list games. Is if you've got these recipes, maybe everyone has a secret recipe. Now the trouble with the secret recipe is that people might have no idea what you're going yeah. for. You know. I have to get four worms, you have no idea of that, so you're just watching me get worms. I mean, like, he might be going for that, might not. It's not satisfying. So what I'm doing in one of my games I'm working on now called Neverland is everyone has a public goal and a private goal. They can win by achieving either of these goals, but in order to achieve the private goal, they have to have, like, a, a public prerequisite. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for example, in, in this game, it's all set on the island of Neverland, Peter Pan, so one of them is, um, you know, have one of your followers in every territory. And as soon as I have a follower in every territory, I put one of my tokens on the thing that says, hey... I could win at any moment now from my private goal. 
Mm-hmm. And so the, the obfuscation is, it's really, I find it really engaging and an interesting challenge as a game designer to be like, okay, how can I do a race game where it's not just obvious that you know someone's out of the game? But you see what you're doing also is providing feedback to the other players. Yes. Yeah, I exactly. mean, it's that feedback that was missing before. Yeah. So feedback is so vital when it comes to making a game. Uh, I'm just seeing if I have any other notes, then we might open up to questions. Uh, well, I, I'm thinking of, I, I mean, I want to address this also, because I think one of the reasons you pulled me onto this panel is because of... Because I like talking to you. Well, I, <laughs> I, I mean, there was also, so, um, uh, there's the, uh, so first off, um, uh, all right, so what happened was, uh, there was a, a speech that Scott Westerfeld gave at yeah. Shucks uh, that was, went online, uh, called, uh, and he called Victory it... Victory Points Suck. Victory Points Suck is the name of the talk. Um, and I saw people in board game design groups um, start posting like, this is a really good talk, you should watch it. And um, what Scott was saying had a lot of truth to it. Um, he, he, I think yes. he made some very good points. He made some outstanding video. points. The, but the, the problem is, first off, as a writer, he's very into hyperbole. Yeah. So it was a very hyperbolic talk. Um, but, but me being like, I'm, you know, I, I sometimes miss that nuance. So it was like, uh, and, and also seeing people like uncritically sharing it, you know, it stops being hyperbolic and starts being, oh, this is truth. VP do suck. And, no, they don't suck. They solve board game design. Yeah. <laughs> They're, uh, so the thing about Scott is he's a storyteller, you know, and he gives this example in a speech of uh, Champions of Midgard about how um, you get points for hanging on to meat. Hang on to food. There's a secret objective card mm-hmm. you can have, which is like normally meat is just used as a resource in the game, but this one is like I don't know three points for every five meat or something yep. like that. And Scott is a storyteller, so he's like, why? Why am I getting incentivized to hang on to food? What is the thematic reason? As a Viking. That, yes, as a Viking, why am I being asked to hang on to food? Like these are all really good points, you know. And then <laughs> so I'm going to interrupt because yeah. I thought that was the worst point in the video. <laughs> you were playing a Viking chief, and he's literally asking, "Why would a Viking chief, ruler of a city of Vikings, want food?" That doesn't make any thematic sense. Uh, but I think he's saying, "Why would you like hoard food?" You know, instead of consuming the food. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, I understand why you'd want to collect the food in order to consume it, but in this game specifically, you're, and it's a, it's a good point. But the reason, the, the the issue is, not everybody plays games with a storyteller mindset. And at the end, he's recommending you make games totally without uh, <laughs> without VP, like not even the sort of low granular goals that we're discussing, but just. Uh, make uh, like story games, and I love story games. I'm working on a story game myself, but it's for a specific kind of player, you know, and it's meant to be played a specific kind of way. And I don't think we should just take um, competitive Ortha games. I don't think we should just pick them up and throw them out into the trash because there are still masters and there are still explorers, and they want to play games also. Uh, and they're not going to be as upset. And a game like Champions of Midgard, like that is that's a game that a lot of masters and explorers enjoy, you know. So it's. For that, for a lot of those people, they didn't blink an eye. Like, oh, I'm incentivized to hang on to these resources. Okay, I'll hang on to these resources because they've totally looked past the theme. Like, they're just seeing things as levers. Like, I, I view it as um, I talk about uh, the player, the avatar, and the agent. Like, the player is you know the human being at the table. The avatar is the thematic. Uh, representation of the player, and the agent is the mechanical representation of the player. And like in a lot of video games, the agent and the um, avatar is one and the same. But in a board game, 
when it feels like the agent and avatar are doing different things, or I can see why the agent is doing this, but I don't understand why the avatar would do it. That's when you get that mood and narrative dissonance yeah. that we were discussing. Uh, so um, a lot of people, but a lot of uh, players, once they learn a game, that avatar is completely disposed of. It's in the garbage because it was just an entry point for them to understand what the agent needs to yeah. do. Uh, one, one thing I touched on earlier is that I, I think that uh, we, yeah we kind of circled away from it, so I'm just going to uh, jump back to it, which is that I think that race games and player mission games can have the most satisfying endings. Uh, again, for a certain type of person. Yeah, I mean, okay, it's, let, it's, let, let me rephrase: the most yeah. viscerally satisfying ending. They can have visceral endings. Let's let's yeah. go with that. Yeah. You know, uh, I don't want to go into the most <laughs> because that opens sure. up. Yeah. Uh, I'm going I'm to go ahead and just say it. The most. Uh, I'll, I'll edit that out. <laughs> you can have the... Uh, and, and this is actually, I think, the best point that Scott made in that speech, mm -hmm. is that at the end of the game, you're like, and we're done, and everyone sits there and does math for a few minutes, and then you're like, oh, you won. Okay. Whereas I was, I was running one of my games today, and multiple times people like applauded or cheered at the end. And I guess because I'm just such a great game designer. But also, because there is a real moment of end. It's like, did he do it? He did it! He did the thing that won the game, you know? Peter, what do you think of figure skating? I care not for sports. Oh, okay. I, I actually don't mind it. I think it's a cool sport. And there, there is an amazing moment, you know, when the skater, you know, pours their heart out on the ice. Yeah. Or they're harder on the ice. They're not always women, um, and they go, skate to the kiss and cry. You know, they embrace their coach. They get the flowers. They're holding their teddy bears, and they sit in the judging area and they wait. And you cut to commercial break. Cut back, or sometimes you don't. You just the camera's just lingering on them, and you wait and you wait and you wait for the judge's score. And then the judge score comes on, and then there's this explosion of emotion. Like sometimes it's relief, sometimes it's anger. Um, what I'm saying is obfuscation is not necessarily a boring thing. It depends on how you present it. It depends on how much there is. It depends if after the obfuscation is listed, it makes sense. Like that's a big part of it also. If after this cloud of efficiency kind of scoring, you look back and you're like, well, okay, I guess that's the score, but it's a lot of work to untangle why a player won. Right. That's not satisfying, but if it's like, oh, you just got this bonus, and if I had gotten that bonus, I would have won, that's way more satisfying. Yeah. I think optimization endgame scoring can work, but it's got to be a specific way. It's got to be dramatic, it's got to be tense, and when it finishes, when you finish the scoring, it has to make sense. Yeah. And, and just to be clear, I'm, I've designed games with, with obfuscation scoring. I will do it again. And I think, like, my favorite game is Feast for Odin, which is nothing but that. Yes. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not decrying. I'm not saying victory points suck. Mm -hmm. I'm more talking broadly about the market these days. So I've been, I've been pitching around some games, and publishers, like, have been like, oh, what do you mean there's no victory points? Like, it, it is a, almost a surprising moment yeah. for them. I'm like, mm -hmm. it's a heavy euro where you don't calculate a spreadsheet at the end. Mm -hmm. And it's standing out. I just thought that was an interesting thing that was worth sharing. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, it's, it's hard to do, but it's, I think uh, it, it stands out and, it, and you, you explore these, these areas of game design that I've never touched before going down this particular path. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you really get to, you, you get to really try to figure out a ways that you can, for lack of a better term, hack people. Right. In an ethical way. Yeah, you know? yeah for sure. <laughs> um, because people are like voluntarily playing your game and you're not leading them to do horrible things, you're just leading them, well hopefully, hopefully your game is not leading players <laughs> to do horrible things. I'm trusting you as game designers, we have a lot of power here. Yeah. But uh, you're, you're trying to get people to do these things with as little granularity as possible. And that's hard to do, but it is really immensely satisfying when you can pull it off. And those games can be really cognitively much easier to play because you're not saying, okay, by doing this you get 35 victory points, and you, when you get this, you get 
27 victory points. You know, it's uh, that is it's feedback, but it's so much feedback. It, it's like sometimes, very removed. Yeah, often. some sometimes too much feedback is just as bad as not enough feedback. You don't know noise, what. Yeah. yeah, you don't know what's significant. Yeah. Uh, the last point I wanted to mention actually relates to something you were saying, which is I think there is a real strength in if you're going to have victory points, somehow have them be thematic. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're like the most victory points wins, oh, what are victory points? They're just they're just victory points. They're just the thing that you win the game. Uh, so the networks is a really good. Example. Yeah, yeah, they're viewers. Yeah, they're yeah. viewers, and the things that you do would get you more viewers. Like there, there's a logic to it. There's an internal logic, and so it relates to what you were saying about the victory points making sense. Not only of like at the end of the game, you're like, wait, why did you win that thing? That was weird. Yeah. But as the game goes, you're like, oh, everything I'm doing is still driving towards the same goal. Yep. And that's one of the things that I'm going to use the point, the point salad uh, pejoratively. I think that's one thing that point salad loses is that what are you trying to do in this game? You're just trying to get points. Just just play with these systems that I made so that you can do things that are that are whatever. Whereas if it's like, look, you're trying to do this thing, like in Scythe, it's money. So I actually quite like the vision points in, in, in Scythe. You're trying to get the most money. A lot of stuff at the end turns into money. But you spend it in the game, it still kind of feels like money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in High Rise, uh, you generally get points by build, constructing buildings, and every floor turns into a point. So while points, while points are not always floors, a lot of your points will come for, from floors, and it makes a lot of sense why you get points and why you won. You built more, you built taller, you built better. Yeah. Um, and to your point also uh, about uh, about story and about people coming, being able to tell. Um, I think the thing about these uh, pejoratively point salad games is they're losing the storyteller. Like they're totally cutting the storyteller out. And just like how I, I want to caution people who are making games for everyone. For everyone, yeah. Like um, if you're trying to make a game for a storyteller, um, you have to question whether you're going to lose the master or explorer. Sometimes you have to. Like my game Weird Stories has no scoring whatsoever because it's a story game, like Fiasco. The point is not to tell, is not to be a winner. The point is to tell a story. So there is no mastering. There is no exploring. It's all storytelling, and that's fine because there's an audience for it. Uh, but when you're doing a pure optimization game, you have to be prepared to be like, okay, well, storytellers will just not be into this game. Maybe that's okay. Maybe it's, that's the kind of game you're trying to make. You know, it's up to what you're willing to do. But if all you have to do is make two little steps to the left and then you can include the storytellers, maybe that's worth considering. Yeah. Cool. So did anyone have any, any questions about anything we've discussed? Uh, yes? Um, are there any examples of player elimination games that are done well or like ways to do that. Oh, yeah. Uh, keep it short is the biggest one. Yeah. Uh, look at GetBit, for example. Uh, GetBit is a player elimination game, but the whole thing takes 15 minutes. Coup is player elimination, and that's... Uh, that's yep. I really like Coup. It's yeah. divisive, but I think Coup's one, one of the great games. Yeah, the problem is that players are being eliminated. The problem is players are being eliminated and then being forced to sit around for 30 to 45 yeah. minutes. Yeah. Uh, but if you have a 20-minute game, and the first player is eliminated 10 minutes in, then they're watching the game for 10 minutes. That's not a big deal, especially because those games tend to be lighter, they tend to be faster, and it's fun to watch your, the rest of the players like have to catch up. Now, there are exceptions, like Werewolf is probably the best exception. Werewolf is, can be like 60 to 90 minutes. And, and you'd be knocked can, out before a single choice. Exactly, exactly. You'd <laughs> be knocked out right away. Uh, but they get away with it, uh, but... It's uh, so fun to watch that game. Yeah, and also considering how many games came in after afterwards trying to quote-unquote fix Werewolf, uh, like The Resistance, for example, I don't think you, you can continue to work in that model. I think you should consider that as... Um, that, yeah, the Yeah, well, no, the ironclad exception that you're not going to be able to catch up with, you know, so... There yeah. is an argument to be made that Tapestry is a player relation game. 
you just look, so tapestry ends for you <coughs> after you've done five income phases, mm-hmm. and you can do income phases whenever you like. So, oh, interesting. Uh, when you when you run out of resources, you have to do income phases. Mm-hmm. But I've had friends who have played tapestry and they have finished the game <coughs> forty five minutes before the rest of the table. Mm. But it's up those to, last turns are the crunchiest. But it's up to you when to eliminate. Like and when to, when to sometimes you're forced to take these. Oh, okay. So uh, yeah. you can get away with it if you're tricky. <laughs> yeah, it's a, that's interesting. I haven't played Tapestry yet, so I can't really comment on it. And of course, I'm, I'm obligated to mention that there are games that, while they don't literally eliminate you, they virtually eliminate you. You know, so you're still playing. You're still technically playing, but you're just a warm body at this point. And what's even worse if your turns are now suboptimal because you're doing poorly, like now that because you're pouring... Well, not just that. Now because you're in last place, everybody else has is able to do big stuff, and you can't because you're a turn or two behind. A lot of Splatter games are like that, by design. <laughs> like, Splatter, they want you to feel the stakes, so you will be punished if you don't, if you're not on the curve. The, the, uh, the Splatter quote I love is, if you can't lose on the first turn, what's the point of a first turn? Yeah, they, they, uh, they, they said we're not interested in making games that you can't lose on the first turn. Yeah. And uh, they make two to three hour games. So um, that's something to watch out for. Um, whether, uh, like, Splatter gets away with it because that's their audience. They, they design for masters. And masters don't mind it because to a master, if I want to avoid that, I'll play better. You know, uh, But explorers hate it because they're punished for exploring. Uh, storytellers hate it. Friends hate it. You know, It depends on what your market is. The, the big tip I'd give for Play Elimination other than length is never make it random. Yeah. Uh, other players limiting you, sure. You eliminating yourself, sure. But if it's a roll of dice and you're like, oh, now I'm out of the game, that sucks. Yeah. yeah. Uh, up the back. One, one of the things I really like about keeping track of points and such in some abstract model card games, particularly betting games or bidding games, is that uh, as, you, as you see yourself behind, you can adjust your play and take greater risk. Right, that, that's the feedback that you're talking about. missing in some of the tabletop board games, I think. The, Can you give me an example of a game that you feel is missing it? Oh, and any of the, uh, even even the popular Catan, uh, Ticket Ride, those kind of things, you you can't affect, uh, you can't take the same kind of risks. It's kind of just going to happen. So, so you're comparing something like poker where you can see your chips dwindling and then you can be like, well, I'm, I'm starting to lose. I've got to go big or go home. Is that is that sure. what you sort of mean? Do you have any thoughts on that? Sure. Well, or, or even the, even the, you know, the, Skull Kings, the Hearts, and uh, Pitch, and Wizard, and those kind of things where you can bid differently and affect the score differently and take greater risks. Right. Yeah, well, I think those games also are very atomic. They have really short atoms, so the units of play, since they're so short, you're constantly taking stock and you're able to reset and like, okay, how about now, how about now, how about now? Whereas a, um, a Euro game, they don't have those short atoms. It's very much more like this turn is very tied closely to what I did last turn and will tie in closely to what I do next turn. Um, and that just might not fit into your play style, it sounds like. Um, also, Catan in particular, uh, one of the reasons Catan is a little long in the tooth these days is it has a follow-away trailer problem. Not a runaway leader, but uh, a lot of times one player falls beyond the pack and just can't catch up. Um, so it's the sort of the inverse of the fall of the runaway leader, and it's uh, it is a genuine problem to the point that my favorite Catan variant is uh, the poverty is not dishonorable variant, where um, if the dice are rolled and you don't get any resources, you get a chip, and on your oh, turn yeah. you can turn in as many chips as you have VP showing and get one resource. 
And that way, uh, if you don't get, you're always getting something. You're either going to get a resource or a chip, uh, and a chip is a fraction of a resource. So the better you do, the less valuable the chips are. So I think that's a, that's a nice variant uh, yeah. that solve, that doesn't completely solve, but it addresses the follow-away trailer problem. And if nothing else, it makes it feel less like you're at yeah. And it de-emphasizes the draft at the start of the game, which uh, is, especially for new players, a little strong. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about like, Seven Wonders starting out as like, kind of like a very master-focused game, where it has you know, a lot of elements, but ultimately it can be reworked as points off, and then like, Seven Wonders Duel, which then introduces the whole things that are like, more for the stories and the, the storytellers, where people are like, military or silence just out or just out way. I mean, in the case of Seven Wonders Duel, I think that was a really nice pivot, uh, especially a two-player game. Masters love two-player games because you can really account for one other player, uh, and it reduces the decision space. So there's only one factor of chaos. Because once you get the third player in, there's all sorts of weird ways the game can go. Uh, Jeff Engelstein talks about the three-body pro three problem in games, um, and that's definitely a thing. What do you think, Peter? Uh, I, th I think that's an interesting example because Seven Wonders Duel is so beloved, even compared to Seven Wonders. Mm -hmm. like, like, to use the board game geek rankings as an example, it, it's, it's well above it. Uh, I think it, it's even sold better, I'm not sure for sure. I have no idea. Yeah, uh, it's, it's very, very, very uh, popular. Yeah. So it's not like people are like, oh, it's the, it's, the, it's the bad version of Seven Wonders. Like, that one took off and, and arguably superseded the original. Um, but generally speaking, I think. Uh, sorry, what, what was the. What was I was sort of asking, does it alienate masters? I, I guess you sort of answered it by saying two players break the master anyway. Right. Is it a nice solution of keeping masters happy, but also introducing. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it adds a, some really cool extra decision space for explorers to play in, in that you can push the game towards the scientific or military victory. So, one thing that I, I try to keep in mind when I design games with is how easy it is to compare two rules. Yeah. Because this was this one is going to be ten, this one is going to be eight. And if you if they're too comparable, then you lead into uh, AP and stuff like that. But if they're not comparable at all, then it becomes arbitrary. So how do you sort of take that into account when, when designing a race game, something where there's not that unit of comparison? So even with games in VP, I try to shy away from this thing will give you VP. Uh, this, this has been feedback I've been giving for a few years now. If I sit down and play a prototype and I'm like, cool, once you've done this, you'll get this 5VP card. I'm like, look, that, that's fine and it works, but instead give me a blue card. And then at the end of the game, say for every blue, red, and green card, you get 10VP. And it, 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 oh, like it arguably just shifts the problem, because then at the end you're like, man, this green card's worth 10VP, but it definitely moves it to later in the game. Because I think, I think there's a few things more tedious than sitting there being like, well, this one is 1VP, this one is 4VP, this one is 6VP. So I'm, I'm generally in favor of, uh, for, for heavier games anyway, obfuscating VP. I like to hide it as much as I can in games. But as a designer, I think that there's value in creating a mathematical model for your game. And I think that's what you're referring to yeah. is how to set up that mathematical model. Um, so in the example of Istanbul, you know, I, 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 I made the argument that Istanbul still has VP, but they're very ungranular. But that's all you need. You know, a gem is one VP. So maybe this particular move, uh, in four moves, you can get a VP. Therefore, that move is worth a quarter of a VP. Uh, and then you can go from there. So you just work in fractions. Um, if there's uh, examples of players getting eliminated, well, a move that can get an opponent halfway eliminated, maybe that's half a point. 
You know, so you can figure out ways to quantify the moves in the game. Just try to quantify the goals in the game. Uh, establish the unit. This is a really great way to balancing a game. Figure out what a base unit in your game is. Um, sometimes it's like for example, a good example is chess. You know, uh, chess doesn't have VP, but uh, players uh, came up with material costs to model how valuable the pieces are in relation to each other. So that's something you can do is come up with a model that way and uh, model, uh, even if the points don't directly correlate to anything, in the space of a mathematical, ma mathematical model, they'll have value. Now, of course, keep in mind your mathematical model will need iteration, and a lot of times you'll get wonky results because your mathematical model needs work. But that's just part of the business. Anyone else have any questions? <coughs> we're about to yeah, we're, we're ready to go. Cool. Thank you all so much for listening. Thanks, uh, everyone. That's it. Yeah. <laughs>